Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm your host, Scott Bland. This week on the Nerdcast, the world of Democratic presidential hopefuls is shrinking, and that's inspiring desperate measures. Campaign reporter Elena Schneider will join us to explain just what's going on as the debate stage shrinks and some candidates drop out of the 2020 presidential race. Plus, we are going on the road. Well, we're going to talk to a reporter who went on the road to town hall events for members of Congress all around the country where uh, she and her colleagues saw vulnerable Democrats being grilled on impeachment by voters. Reporter Sarah Ferris has been to some of those town halls. She's going to tell us what she's been hearing. As always, we are taping this show on Thursday. Today, that's August 29th. So if any more candidates drop out after August 29th, they're not going to be in here. All right. So starting off this week, more than half of the Democratic presidential field has gotten bounced from the party's debate circuit as of Wednesday night. But many of them are not meekly exiting stage left, although actually a few of them are, maybe a few more than we expected. Here to talk about it, national political reporter Elena Schneider. Elena, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So that was like the the big development of the Democratic presidential campaign this week. We've had two nights of 10 people each of the past few debates. It's been it's been a lot uh, it's been really big stages. We're still going to have a big stage in Houston in September, but just one night, only 10 people qualified instead of the 20 that we've seen. Big shift in the campaign. That's right. And I would even argue that the DNC rules around these debates have not only been an organizing principle for this week, but more broadly just for the entire campaign. But this week, we actually saw it all sort of come to fruition when the new um, higher thresholds to get on the debate stage cut down the field by about half in terms of who's going to actually be up there. And that was what? 130,000 donors and four polls showing you at least 2% or higher. Exactly. And for the candidates who are left off the stage, they basically have two choices now. One, they can try and get onto the debate stage in October. So the same thresholds that were set for the one in September continue through October, which means they've got basically another month where they can qualify through those polls and through those donor thresholds. That's one option. The second option is to just sort of throw their hands up in the air, redirect resources and focus on Iowa, sort of go at it with an old school playbook and, you know, maybe not worry so much about spending money on uh, getting individual donors or, or building up um, building up their online presence, but rather just focus on building their operations in Iowa and see if they can surprise some people that way. And I think that that's the tough choice that all these candidates are being forced to make, how they allocate those resources. And some are deciding to not stay in it at all. Well, right. That's that's the, the third option, exactly. right? It's a door, door number three is just to... Get say, out of here. Say so long. And and we've seen a few candidates do that in the past week. I think you know, first it was John Hickenlooper and then Jay Inslee. And then just, just last night, just Wednesday night, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, who's one of the candidates you've been following since the beginning. Right. So Tuesday night, Kirsten Gillibrand gathered with her family and her campaign manager and basically had a come to Jesus moment of saying, you know, are we going to keep doing this? And, and basically it came to, down to two final polls that were going to come out the next morning, Wednesday morning. And and if she didn't register at 2% in either of those polls, sort of signaling any kind of movement for her, she was going to get out of this race. Neither of those polls showed her at 
and she decided to get out of the race. She filmed a video, announced uh, later Wednesday evening that she was going to be pulling out. And and look, I think that she very much cited the DNC rules as a part of why she was not able to continue in this race, that that was really um, what forced her hand in getting out of it. And um, and I think that that's really telling in terms of how important these rules have actually ended up being for all these candidates and how they've shaped their runs. I think, though, that there was another reason that came through in your reporting for, and I guess it actually is a little intertwined with the the DNC rules, but that you found out in, in your reporting is that Gillibrand was out of money almost. She started the race with this big war chest that she'd built up as a Senate candidate. And then because they're both federal races, she was able to transfer it over to her presidential campaign. And she spent almost all of it, basically, at this point. And she was basically forced with the decision of, do I spend my last million dollars out of the 10 million I started with, or should I call it quits? Right. So she basically did an all-out blitz in August to try and build up her name recognition, particularly in Iowa, a place where she felt like she could really get a foothold, and and ended up spending about a million and a half dollars on TV and digital ads there after she got her first 2% qualifying poll. It was the first and only that she received um, in late August there in Iowa. And she was hoping that there might be a few more. And in fact, this is a complaint that I heard from a number of campaigns that weren't able to make it on the stage Tom Steyer, uh, chief among them, which is that there just simply wasn't as much polling in August, so there weren't as many opportunities for them to register at 2% than there was after the first debate. Of course, if you ask the DNC that same question, they would point to the fact that they've accepted more uh, qualifying polls than ever before and and that candidates have had plenty of opportunities to make it to 2%. So those are the two sides of that argument. But look, I think for for Gillibrand herself, she ran out of money. And that sort of all-out push in August didn't yield the results, didn't yield the movement that she needed. And she made the decision that that it wasn't enough to keep pushing. I think that that's a common thread basically in almost every presidential dropout that happens before like the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary, basically. It's almost always there's a financial impetus to, like, to, you, you just can't keep the lights on. Yeah, she had 100 people, 100 staffers who were on payroll. And mm-hmm. when you've got 100 people that you need to pay, uh, that money goes quickly. Yep. And and I think that they, they knew that. And so they made their one final attempt in August. That didn't pan out the way that they hoped. And now she's going back to New York. Now, Elena, let me pivot to another story that you wrote this week about – Starting to pick up on the beginnings of not the beginnings of complaints about the DNC rules because that's happen, been happening for a while, but the beginnings of some uh, maybe like very early strategizing by some of these campaigns uh, who are getting bumped off the debates about how they might be able to band together and what they might be able to do as a collective to try and push back on this. Look, so these campaigns are starting to get a little desperate, which maybe is is not all that surprising since they've been then they've been now eliminated from the debate stage. And given that, they're sort of entertaining all kinds of options. And you have to remember that a lot of these people are friends. So they the democratic politics, politics in general is a very small world. They all have casual conversations with each other about the frustrations that they're dealing with on their individual campaigns. And I picked up from a number of my sources that there were some very preliminary you know, one-off conversations among staffers about options to not only sort of coordinate pushback to the DNC, but also the potential for having events that wouldn't be sanctioned by the DNC. Now, the big risk with that is that that would eliminate them from being able to appear on any future debate stage. So if any of these candidates 
showed up in a non-sanctioned DNC event and then somehow magically broke out in Iowa, had some stunning you know, movement in Iowa you know, in February, they wouldn't be able to then suddenly start showing up on debate stages later in 2020. So it's a, it's a real gamble that they're having to make, but it's one that sort of, again, displays how, how, how desperate they're all getting, but on top of that, that nothing has happened yet. That's, that's right. I mean, the desperate is the perfect word, right? When you're starting to throw around solutions to a problem that require you to solve a potentially bigger problem later than uh, that. I mean, that's that's the the definition of desperation. Right. So I think that for for a lot of these, it's it's we will I will keep reporting on whether or not this actually materializes in any more formal, even in, in, in any serious way. Right now, it's just conversation. It's just talk. But I think it demonstrates just how, like you said, just how desperate and and sort of grasping at straws everyone who who is no longer on the debate stage has really has really turned into. Zooming out here, though, it's, I I think it's really interesting, and we've talked about this before about how the DNC went about setting up these these rules, and they've still gotten a lot of criticism for them. But basically, it seemed like they were really trying, especially through the summer, to set things up so that there was as little chance as possible of them having to cut people out after after what happened in 2016 when there was all sorts of criticism from Bernie Sanders supporters about uh, whether or not the DNC had a thumb on the scale for Hillary Clinton and and its, its role in setting up the debates and the, the, what the debates played in that, how it, it seems to me like they, they tried to really kind of open it up to as many people as possible at the beginning. But at some point, you can't have two nights or, or you know, 10 people on the stage or whatever, right? You, you kind of have to provide a process for stepping down like the numbers, I guess. It's cliche, but the DNC really was uh, between a rock and a hard place. They they had no good options in this situation. They were trying to maintain transparency and, like you said, avoid the mistakes of 2016, while also the awareness that people do not want to sit around for two nights, 20 people on a debate stage throughout the entire year. And and with that awareness, and also with the awareness that they didn't want to create a so-called the kitty table, the way that the Republicans did in 2016. And so, by and large... Candidates were able to get on those first two debate stages, make their pitches, and if they weren't able to take off, as the DNC would say, then then that's on them, and that's not necessarily uh, the DNC's fault. Again, these candidates and these campaigns who are not on the stage would also make the argument that it's not the DNC's job to actually winnow the field, that the 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 people whose job that is is actually the people of Iowa. But that's sort of the the push-pull that we have right now, sort of both uh, balancing the desire of voters and, for that matter, um, media outlets to have a smaller debate stage um, with with the awareness that, that you don't necessarily want to sort of give the impression that you're being undemocratic either. Last question, Elena. What, do, we, do we know what, if anything, some of these candidates who have been bounced are are going to want to be doing on September 12th when uh, the people polling above them are gathered together in Houston to, to debate on TV? So I asked, and uh, none have given me a clear answer yet. Certainly, they um, most of them acknowledge that they would watch it. Uh, but I don't think that there there's sort of clear plans yet. But certainly, several of them pointed to Governor Steve Bullock's uh, way that he handled it, the blueprint that he used during the first debate, which he wasn't able to get onto um, that first debate stage. And instead, he was able to get um, time with Stephen Colbert, which arguably is just as powerful, if not as many eyeballs, as that uh, as that debate stage. And so, I look, I think that they're all going to attempt to get some sort of national coverage, be seen in ways while all the other candidates are sort of bunkered down doing debate prep. Uh, they're going to try and take advantage of it. Whether or not they're successful uh, sort of remains to be seen. 
Got it. Well, more to come in the future weeks and months on, on debates. It's kind of the, the, the big events, uh, the big free media opportunities of, of 2019. So uh, we'll, we'll be talking plenty more about it. Elena, thanks for the update. Thanks for having me on. Next up, our reporter Sarah Ferris is with me to talk about the sometimes hostile town hall she's covered over the summer and what is going on there during the August congressional recess. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. So, Sarah, you and a few of your colleagues on Politico's Congress team uh, wrote that voters across the country in, in districts from California to Pennsylvania to Massachusetts grilled House Democrats this month on the potential impeachment of President Donald Trump. Is there a moment in in the, the reporting and you guys kind of spread across the country to, to attend a bunch of these town hall meetings and, and see what was going on? Is there a particular moment that stands out to you as, as particularly evocative? I think what, what was really interesting to me, I'm sitting in a suburb a little bit north of Pittsburgh, and I'm in the back of this room that's got more than 100 people in it for Congressman uh, Connor Lamb, who's a freshman. And a man comes up to the microphone, and he starts reciting lines from the Mueller report. And he's getting into this really nuanced discussion about the legalese, uh, the difference between criminal contempt, uh, and what the House could do, and whether they could hold them in, in inherent contempt. And this very nuanced argument that showed to me that it's not not just a anti-Trump fervor that's sweeping these liberal suburbs. It's a, a very deep-rooted legal argument that's that's happening, and people have this passion and fire that I don't think is going to be going away in the next couple of months. It seems to me that people are are much more involved uh, and and have this deep knowledge of exactly what the House is doing and exactly what they're not doing. And apparently, they're memorizing the Mueller report. Yeah, yeah, he may have had a note card with uh-huh, him, but. Okay. Uh, um, this is especially interesting because this this district that Connor Lamb represents now it was redrawn when Pennsylvania did their whole uh, mid cycle redistricting the court order so on and so forth in 2018 still a district that President Donald Trump won in 2016 Connor Lamb is surely aware of that and and understands that and and it's that's that's got to be a tough position for him caught between some of his Democratic base constituents and maybe the the median voter in his district. That's right. And what we what I saw was a very cautious approach from him. I mean, he's a federal, a former federal prosecutor. He knows the ins and outs of this legal case. Um, So he was going right up and kind of bantering with this guy about exactly what the House is doing and and what the cases are and what kind of evidence he'd be looking for. Um, I heard a very similar approach from Mikey Sherrill, who's another former federal prosecutor, another vulnerable freshman Democrat. She was in New Jersey and she also got grilled. um, by not exactly people, you know, wearing T-shirts and holding signs and doing the activist thing. But these are people who were, you know, some of them looked retired. Some of them could have been a, a college student. Some of them were moms wearing high heels coming here from work. And, you know, they're they're pressing these members and exactly why they aren't willing to cross that line and say, yes, I, I'm willing to support this impeachment inquiry. And so now where, where exactly do we stand overall in terms of the House Democratic Caucus on the question of impeachment or moving forward with impeachment proceedings, right? Because I guess there's some nuance there in like the difference between those two things potentially. Right. So the Judiciary Committee, not to go too far into the weeds, but the Judiciary Committee has basically launched an impeachment inquiry. They are in the midst of an inquiry, which means that they're uh, which is something they're using in the courts to try and get these documents from the Trump administration. Um, But the difference could make a political difference uh, on the Hill this fall if there are Democrats who are getting hammered for uh, their leadership going ahead with this impeachment inquiry, uh, which the, the Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her top deputies are very careful to say we're not 
pursuing impeachment right now. But you have the judiciary chairman, Jerry Nadler, saying we are in the midst of an in- inquiry, which is this mixed messaging that's very confusing. And I think it's going to wind up having some freshman Democrats having to be on the defensive even more than they are about why or why not the House is is taking these steps. Well, and and it seems like, especially with regard to the battleground district folks, that the, the reason why Pelosi has not come out with it is, is the same reason that a lot of them haven't endorsed it at this point, right? There's There's deep concern about the politics of pursuing impeachment in 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 swing districts and districts that Donald Trump won in 2016, maybe some that he lost narrowly, uh, and but where they're you know they don't feel like there's overwhelming uh, public support for for doing that. And it's not something that a lot of these folks campaigned on. Right. In I mean, there's about 40, 40 Democrats in seats that Trump won, I believe, and I think maybe five have come out for impeachment. This is wow. still something that is not popular with most of their districts. And those who have are largely in uh, California districts. A lot of them are in Orange County. So these are increasingly liberal districts. Uh, so they these guys who are taking the risk of, of coming out for impeachment are in are in seats where they they must know that's what people want. They they have the the pulse of their district and it's in these these bluer Orange County districts. Or at least they feel like they can defend it. Right. Um, right. And then I mean I I know that you know an argument I've seen on the other side is that uh, look the, this sort of thing isn't going to become popular unless like elected Democrats send the signal to their, you know, the rest of the party and their constituents and independents who might lean toward Democrats that this is something that the party stands for. But what what does what does someone like uh, Mike Sherrill or Connor Lamb have to say about that? Well, they are they have this uh, this feeling that the, the Democrats are never going to have 218 votes to actually vote for impeachment on the floor. So what the kinds of things they're hearing from leadership and that they're sensing from the caucus up in the House is like, even if you get the vast majority of the caucus, uh, 235 members in favor of of impeachment, you're not going to have every single member of uh, of a Democrat in a Trump district go in favor. So it is almost impossible. I see them getting to 218. So why come out? Why put yourself on this uh, in this position where the Republicans are going to run attack ads on you? They're already doing that for people who've been uh, somewhat wishy-washy, not even coming out for impeachment. Cindy Axney of Iowa, she's another vulnerable freshman. She hasn't even said she supports impeachment precisely. It's a nuanced uh, kind of argument that she made that Republicans went crazy with and started running ads. Um, so so there's this, uh, you know, you risk saying too much and getting featured in ads. And if you don't say enough, you're going to get these uh, folks coming out of your town halls and, and lining up and asking you questions over and over. Hmm. What what has changed over the course of the year? I remember we, we've talked in the past, and I, certainly in 2018, um, as as Reporters went out on the trail to look at some of these people when they were running for office for the first time, and they would go to events. And it, impeachment was just not a um, a subject that was coming up a lot on the ground. It was definitely a big topic in Washington, uh, as everyone was awaiting the Mueller report, and then finally the Mueller report came out. Uh, but the impression that that I had gotten was that in in the districts, this wasn't bubbling up so much at these sort of meetings. What has changed this summer? Is this being kind of driven by activist groups that are trying to to um, make a point or is something a little more organic happening as as you you hinted at with just people like digesting the Mueller report and stuff from that on their own and 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 taking interest in it yeah i think it's a, a several different factors there are certainly groups uh like indivisible who are coming out and they're trying to make it a an august impeachment august or they're trying to run these kinds of grassroots campaigns 
drumming up some of the pressure. But I mean, listening to to people who aren't affiliated with this groups uh, coming up and speaking at town halls, it really does seem like it's just the daily drumbeat of things that the president has done, things that the House has uncovered, things that the investigations uh, have been have been finding out. And and this is the time, you know, if any, to try and get the House to to, to, to support impeachment. If that's something that you want, you want your member to do this sooner rather than later, because it's it's almost, uh, you know, a given that Democrats would not try to do this in an election year of 2020. That would just be too politically risky, although there are some um, very strong pro-impeachment folks who would disagree with me on that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's just it's bubbling up to a point where people say this is our time to really come out and show the support for the members. And I think members themselves are realizing that they have gotten the cue from leadership to come out for this if they need to in their districts. There's mm. um, on every tough vote, a leadership you know, representative will tell members, look, vote your district, vote your conscious. Um, and, and they've they, before they left for August, Speaker Nancy Pelosi kind of did allow her members uh, to come out if they needed to. You know, she said, "You feel free to blame me if you if you don't want to come out for impeachment. You can say, you know, this is something that I don't support. You can use that line." But she also said, "Members can go ahead and and if this is how they." feel this is what they believe they they don't have to uh, feel like they can't come out or or risk not being loyal to her or mm-hmm. to the other democratic leaders so members have told me that what she said right before they left for august was something that has uh, got a lot of them thinking that they could do this during the recess that's really interesting it's almost like the as as i think some of the media furor and there definitely was furor in in washington has like died down around it there's a little bit more bubbling up in the districts than maybe we previously thought before among among ordinary people, constituents, or maybe less ordinary people, activists. And I mean that in in all, you know, all the best ways possible. It's a, the, whatever you say about activists, they're not, typically not the most ordinary people out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what, what, what should we be looking for, uh, kind of the next step on this story when uh, members of Congress get back to Washington next month? That's a good question. I think what we'll be looking for, the, the what we'll be following the closest are the reactions in the courts to some of these outlying uh, subpoenas. Okay. So uh, former White House counsel Don McGahn is a big one. Um, that's tied up in the courts right now. And so far, uh, the courts have agreed with Democrats and said, uh, you know, we, we will um, force him to testify, but that's on appeals right now. Um, so there's a couple of, of nuanced legal arguments, but, but really it's going to be how do these rank and file Democrats go about confronting leadership, if at all. Um, and, and trying to force the issue. Right. Bit. Will mm-hmm. they try to force the issue? Because, again, time is running out. It's going to be September, middle of September by the time members come back. They just they're gone for a very long time this summer. Um, and so they're quickly going to be getting into fights over immigration, over the funding bills. Uh, and then there's October and November go very quickly in Washington. And so if this is something that they want to push, they're going to need to be doing this uh, smartly and, and organize. They're going to need to organize. Uh, and find a way to try and convince their leadership that this is something that needs to go forward. At the same time as all of these other committees, there's six committees investigating Trump. All of the chairmen have very different ideas about what should result from this. And, and Jerry Nadler, as I was talking about before, he does want to see an impeachment go forward. Uh, right now they're in the inquiry. And so th- it's going to be a lot about how he decides to describe what's going on with his committee and, and how leadership whether they agree with him or not on on how far it's going. Got it. All right. Well, we'll have to check back in with you uh, sometime in the near future. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in this week. Our producer for this episode is Jenny Ament, and Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. 
Once again, thanks so much for tuning in this week. We'll talk to you again next week.